0: want to talk Cubs at all? Is that what you're telling me? No, I'm not
1: saying that. I'm just saying that somebody could be listening to this in two weeks and we could have won the World Series or... (laughs) Right, right, right. Or not have gotten to
0: it at all. Yeah. Yes. It makes for a you know makes for an odd listening experience yeah i mean we can talk about where it's at right now and yeah, that, that's fine i mean we can we uh, can make it a build choose your own, your own adventure ad- yeah choose your own adventure book and we'll say if the cubs have won we have recorded this ending if they did not we have recorded this <laughs> alternate ending <laughs> my
1: daddy wants you to know a lot of the episodes have mostly clean language, but this episode has some words in it that aren't meant for all ages. So, if you have kids like me in your house, you may want to put some headphones on for
0: this one. You've been warned. Done, done, done. Gah, <laughs> Zidra Stuce, which is... Hello in Russian, believe it or not. I'm really expanding my language with this podcast alone. Uh, Greetings and welcome to another episode of Daddy Unscripted. I'm glad to have you all here listening. And you may be wondering why the very first word in this was Russian. On all of my episodes, I try to greet you in a different foreign language. And uh, the last episode with Kevin where I used Irish Gaelic for a reason. I would say if I had to bring a tie-in with the Russian, it would be because Kevin's favorite hockey team is the Detroit Red Wings. And for any of you who know of the Detroit Red Wings, some of their very strong players of recent past have been... Russian players. So uh, this Fork in the Road episode with Kevin, who is the band manager for Umphreys McGee. So during this Fork in the Road, we were originally thinking we were going to talk a fair mix of music and sports, uh, very similar to what took place with Ryan Stasik's Fork in the Road episode, but it pretty much ended up staying a lot on music and uh, we talked a lot about the band's origin and what his uh, role was and how his role has evolved over time with the band and we also talked a lot about the band's philosophies and what drives them to do things the way that they do which is very unique and very Uh, fan-oriented and very much driven in a way to bond the band and the fans together in a very intimate, organic way that really has always been one of the things that has kept me so interested in the band, in their model that really isn't a model You'll also hear me tell Kevin that basically they are all in the Matrix in their own world there. So, yeah, I think I threw him off a little bit. Regardless, I'm very excited that I was able to finally coordinate with Kevin to sit down for a few hours and have these two conversations and to be able to present them to all of you. uh, Maybe dig into a few things that nobody ever really Uh, is able to touch on with Kevin I think a lot of things you know probably stay very very band related so I think it's cool to get these uh, little background on some of these people that we know or even don't know and hear a lot about you know in the daddy episodes what has made this dad into the dad that they are and what are their philosophies and ideas as a father and then on some of these other episodes putting a little bit more to who is this person and with obvious connotations with ryan and kevin as to getting a little bit more information on the band in general so with all of that said let's get right to the episode with kevin browning for this fork in the road here again for our fork in the road episode with kevin browning who is the manager of umphreys mcgee am i leaving anything out in your title description i don't want to um just make it so not that that's plain sounding but you know what i mean Uh, i'm also the janitor also the janitor wow which knowing the band that uh you should probably be making more than the manager makes (laughs) <laughs> no, that's actually. I, I have
1: to give. Uh, I have to give credit to one of our, our graphic designer, Kyle Baker. His uh, his card says uh, "President and Janitor," which awesome. I thought was uh, very apropos, yeah. um, an apt description. Um, no, you're not leaving anything out. Um, if you want a little uh, little backstory, I can I can give you that because
0: I've worn a lot of different hats over the years. Oh yeah, I I think that is part of the really cool story of uh, one of the many very cool stories of the band as a whole and your role with them. So yeah, get in, get into that. Um, Sure. So in, you
1: know, I first met um, Brendan and Ryan, um, you know, guitar and bass bass player in the band and to the original founders at, at Notre Dame in 1997, I was a freshman at Notre Dame. My brother lived off campus and we were at a house party on Marion Street for you, uh, South Benders out there. Um, and I walked down into the basement and I heard a band playing a cover of Bathtub Gin. Hmm. And I, th- I thought, oh, this is, uh, this is good. This is interesting. I thought, I thought this, everybody said this school doesn't have any good music. So that was literally the first week I was up there. And turned out that the this was a band Tashi Station, which was a band that Brendan and Ryan were in prior to Umphrey's. The keyboardist in the band I realized lived directly across the hall from me in my dorm in mm. Dylan hall, in Dylan Hall on campus. So I introduced myself and started chatting with him. And then uh, my brother was friends with Brendan and Ryan, um, and he had introduced me to them. And you know, eventually that that band split, and they formed Umphrey's. And uh, I went to see you know the uh, all the uh, the first after about the first like eight or ten shows. I said, I said to Brendan, I said, hey, you know, I'm I'm probably always going to be here. I may as well learn to make myself useful. Uh, what do you need most? And Brendan looked at me and said, Well, we sound like shit. Can you fix that? <laughs> and I, I was like, well, I think you'll probably have to fix that, but I can help. I can maybe help with the sound, <laughs> right? So that was how I, uh, I got into audio engineering. Uh, literally, just on a whim of, hmm, we need help with this. Can you do that? And I, I, I didn't know anything about um, audio engineering. I was a history and government major at Notre Dame, so certainly not something that was in my background at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just started reading a few books and asking a lot of questions and more than anything, just experimenting, you know, we had very basic uh, gear back then. It was a little eight channel powered mixer and a handful of microphones and mic stands. It was not a, not a very elaborate uh, setup. The equalizer on my car, I think had more bands than the equalizer <laughs> on the PA. Um, so I, I, did that. And I, I did that, uh, you know, as we, as we grew and evolved, I grew and evolved on the engineering and recording and producing side of things. And in addition to the live mixing engineering, I also, um, started doing studio work and I was on the road full time with the band for the first 13 years, uh, doing engineering, but also had, you know, also had kind of just filled in a number of other roles, which was really how the organization has operated from day one. Mm-hmm. Not just, not just from myself, but everybody, uh, everybody pulled their weight in different ways. And I, you know, I worked on everything from just helping the, the touring logistics and travel to spearheading the, our album releases and a lot of our, a lot of our, our content, Um, audio, video, videos, sort of everything related to that facilitated capturing, editing, and producing, you know, those, uh, those kinds of things. And after about, after 13 years on the, on the road full time, I was wearing, I was kind of burning the candle at both ends. I would come home off the road and basically still work nine to five on whatever project or album uh, that we were working on. I was trying to business develop uh, a number of uh, you know some of the special events that we do and some of the unique offerings that we put together I was you know I was trying to spend more and more time on that and it just got to the point where it was too much and I you know I felt like I was more valuable to the whole organization uh, off the road in a management capacity than I was um it was it was easier to uh, for somebody to take my role on the on the road than it was to try to hire somebody to do all the other things that I was doing at home. So, in 2011, I got off the road full time. We hired Chris Mitchell to do front of house engineering. He took my place on the road, and then um, Manny Sanchez and Greg Majors, who were already doing a lot of the studio stuff with me, uh, took the engineering side of that on um, full time, and I I focused more on the on the sort of bigger picture about the label side of things, distribution, marketing, everything that goes into actually releasing the record, putting it in fans' hands. So yeah, in two, in 2014, we started our own record label. So I, I run that for us uh, as well. And, you know, my partner on the management side, um, Vince Iwinski, another Notre Dame grad, he's been around since day one as well. And he's still very much, uh, steering the ship with me. No doubt. It's just when I, so he he was doing that, he, you know, he was managing uh, all those years that I was on the road Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was actually tour managing. Uh, I mean the, in the early years, that was kind of one and the same. Um, and eventually it got, you know, where it made sense for him to get off the road and we hired a real tour manager to just do that piece of it. And then it was sort of the same thing. I got off to, to manage with him, and and hired chris to take my spot. So over uh you know that's kind of the the broad strokes it's sort of whatever needed to be done uh is what uh, is what I did for for a bunch of years and still still today in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, or if we don't you know if something needs to be done and we don't know how to do it we figure out who the right partner is to do it
0: or we go find the right person to bring in in house and do it. So when you were when you were starting out in school and with your government and history majors or whatever, what were you, what had you been aiming at with those in mind? Uh, it certainly wasn't managing a rock band.
1: I <laughs> yeah. That. yeah. Um, I figured it'd be one of two things. I thought that I would, my plan was my initial plan was to try to stretch college to the five-year plan my brother did my brother did that executed it very well spent a year in spain so i figured maybe i'd do that at a minimum and then i would i figured i'd take a year off and you know kind of go go do that one year that that mythic year that uh you can go kind of without responsibility but Mm -hmm. go you know go travel the world and then i figured i'd go to grad school or law school Mm -hmm. i didn't necessarily want to be um i didn't really want to be a lawyer but i felt like i could stay in academia and uh, go back to school. I, I liked school. I liked learning a lot, and it, it was it just seemed fun to me. And then I, I figured I would end up. That was sort of as far as I had had gotten in terms of you know what I might specifically do with either one of those. Mm-hmm. Instead, I you know after graduating from Notre Dame, moved to Chicago, where the rest of the guys already had moved the previous year, and we kind of figured we'd give it a year or two you know, give the, give the band a really, you know, all of our effort for a year or two, we'd have some fun, it wouldn't work. And then we'd all go get real jobs. Mm -hmm. And here we are uh, almost 19
0: years later. That's crazy. So did you, then as the band is kind of starting to form and all of its different tentacles, uh, I really, I really paused to say that word correctly, I will yes. add. Hate to um, <laughs> Freudian slip, the <laughs> yeah. old tentacles. Yeah. Um, did you change into a uh, full audio engineer hat at that point? Like, did your majors change and you kind of change direction with your schooling as well? Uh, no,
1: not at all. I, oh, okay. I kept studying history and government. Uh, Notre Dame really didn't have... I mean, They have a great engineering program. But not a. They don't have a real audio engineering program. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I felt like I was learning more. I would talk to some of the kids that were sort of freelancing as as mixers. What I was doing that were at Notre Dame when I was uh, when I was learning, and I felt like I was getting a way more valuable education uh, night in, night out in these bars and clubs. Mm -hmm. um, literally just by seeing new gear, experimenting, trying new things, asking people that had been doing it a long time. Um, I felt like I was learning way more in a practical application than I was in school. I, I, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a few ways to go about it. I kind of learned all the nuts and bolts of it. Mm -hmm. Um, just the practical side of, okay, The show starts at eight o'clock. How do I make the kick drum sound good? How do I make everything sound good? I had no, no formal training in terms of the, the science and math that are, that were happening behind it. Mm -hmm. I was just trying to figure out how to make the thing sound good. And once I got, once I got to a point where I was comfortable (laughs) that I knew how to set everything up and make it work and, and put together a good mix and capture a quality recording. Then I, it's only when I started going back to try to teach myself, okay, why does, how does that really work? What's the sine wave doing there? How is a compressor actually affecting the signal? Um, so I learned completely practically first and then kind of did the opposite. Cause if you, if you go to school, you don't touch a console out of the gates. You just learn all the science and the fundamental the fundamentals behind uh, how things work before you learn or, you know, why they work and how sound travels, you learn all that stuff before you actually learn, you know, how an oxen really works. So right, it's kind of a,
0: kind of a backwards way,
1: at least, you know, in a traditional model, but this is the music business. So I'm not much for traditional models. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so if we are looking at that, just a, quick little fun glimpse since you said that you guys were all kind of thinking that it would maybe be one to two years or whatever of really giving it your all and then going into your side jobs. What do you think or what do you know based upon what everybody was doing schooling wise and whatever? What would everybody in the band be doing today?
1: (laughs) Uh, um, Well, I think that Brendan would be teaching English Mm -hmm. or while giving guitar lessons on the side. I'm naturally, you know, speculating here.
0: Right. Right. This is all. Yeah. This is all speculation. Um, Let's see.
1: Stasic with a um, finance and Japanese minor Mm -hmm. uh, would probably
0: be the GM of the Pittsburgh Penguins. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Um, on the Japanese side, especially like their Japanese market would be huge. Yes. They would, they would crush in Kyoto.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's see. I think Chris Myers would probably be a, he'd probably be teaching at a very prestigious music academia, uh, while playing, um, weddings and bar mitzvahs on the side. mm Hmm. Um, just for fun. Cause Chris loves playing Ba mitzvahs. Let me tell you, <laughs> um, Jake, there's absolutely nothing that Jake would ever be doing in this world than creating music. Mm-hmm. The guy, the guy is, um, a voracious creator and he, he, his brain works at a, the guy writes sometimes multiple songs per day. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uh I can never see him doing anything besides what he's doing um in some capacity, let's see Andy, I hope Andy would own a a screaming barbecue restaurant. <laughs> I think that's as much about what I would want Andy to do, yeah, I could see uh Andy getting up at like four a m to get the smoker going and then. About seven a.m., he'd hand it off to his uh, minions while he went and hit the links, played eighteen, and then come back. Yeah. And Joel, I you know Joel, oh God. Joel. Joel
0: would be like you've seen Legends of the Fall, yes? Yeah. <laughs> Joel would be that section of Tristan's life where he's on on the boat <laughs> and uh, living amongst the uh, indigenous tribes of various islands. Yes. Yeah. The thing is, is I
1: think that Joel might be doing exactly what he's doing now without playing the music part, just Mm -hmm. traveling the world. Um, you know, the guy, uh, the guy's a jet setter and I love him for it. Him and his wife get out and uh, travel. He literally, uh, uh, just got back from about a 12 country stint in Europe for the last three weeks. Yeah. Um, so I think he'd, I think he'd still be doing that. Um, just with some other oddity
0: to pay the bills. Right. Well, he'd probably be like a food or wine critic around the world. Maybe even have like some kind of show on the food network or on the travel network. Uh, I could to de- pay the bills. Yes. He definitely, uh, <laughs> he definitely could have a travel show. Right. Right. Uh, okay. So that was a, a weird little offshoot, but had to, had to be done. So you are then. I mean bringing this all into play uh with our previous episode you are in your new relationship with Shay uh you are learning a completely different tool set um for your life or career and spending so much time doing it with the guys what was it like during those college years I mean with with having to balance Everybody's different schedule, whether it was classes or I mean, I don't know if any of the guys were actually doing jobs during that time as well. But how how difficult was all of that piecing it together with so many different people trying to actually play the gigs that weren't being played right there in your own backyard, basically?
1: Um, Early on, it didn't feel challenging because it was mostly uh, mostly south Bend gigs are really close and then it it did get logistically a bit more complicated as we started to expand that i i missed a a handful of shows at the end of my senior year um when the guys were they were traveling a little further to a few spots and i had i felt like i had to finish you know i had to finish school and i didn't want to be i didn't not want to be present for um sort of the end of my collegiate career so I skipped a handful of shows at that time Mm -hmm. that didn't coincide with my schedule, but it was, you know, when, when you've got a group of people that are all really committed to the same thing, it, uh, it was all of our priorities. So I, while it seems like it was challenging, it, it ultimately, it's what we all wanted to be doing anyway. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it didn't prove as tough. I mean, honestly, when I met, when I met Shay, I was like, oh, I literally, I said, I was like, you're absolutely amazing. I'm having so much fun hanging out, but like, I don't, I don't think this is a good time to start a relationship. Like I, I just started, uh, I was starting my junior year of college. I had just moved off campus. I was traveling with the band more and more. And I was like, honestly, like I, I just, I wanted to be selfish and mm-hmm. I, I was like, I don't think I'm going to be traveling a lot. And I, I don't want to you seem way too awesome for me to um, string you along. And she basically just ignored me. She was like, okay. And which was, she clearly was the wiser of the two of us at that moment because um, I couldn't stop calling her or (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, there was no chance that I was going to not pursue her because uh, she's amazing and awesome. And I, I realized relatively quickly that I would be an absolute idiot to, um, to let this one go. But, you know, expanding over the years, it was, uh, it was hard to, to balance, to balance all of those things, to balance a, you know, a relationship uh, with being gone, um, being gone so much. And uh, those are just things you, you work through and you, mm-hmm. you figure out and you make sure that you really capitalize on all the time that you have together. And in a lot of ways, it, it taught me a lot about, um, myself. And it taught me a lot about our relationship and that I realized that uh, I, if I was gone for three weeks, that it was really hard to be away. But when I, I got home, I was all of a sudden, I was home for two, two weeks and we could then spend two full weeks together. And it made, made me appreciate the, the quality of the time that we would spend when we were together in that, that same five-week window, if we were waking up next to each other every single day, uh, we might've taken, we might've taken some of that for granted. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I'm certain of it. So it made me, it it was challenging and it, it put strain on uh the relationship, but it, it made us uh, recognize some things that, you know, some of the pluses of it mm-hmm. and some of those things that still stick with me today. And, uh, while I don't travel, you know, to every show anymore, like I did, um, I still travel, you know, a decent amount, uh significantly less than, uh, you know, than the band and our crew. Um, but I still travel a decent amount and my wife, um, she works for Google and she travels a ton as well. So we both still literally, there are times where we will high five at the airport where she's, <laughs> she's coming home from a trip. She's been gone for three or four days. I'm leaving for three or four days. Like, yeah. and that, you know, that, I think some of that, some of that early time set us up for, set us up for success later as we, as we both still do it. And right. One thing to, to kind of note is when I got off the road, um, that did coincide with us deciding to, to have our first child. And it, there's no doubt that that played a, you know, that played a, a, a role in it for the timing of, of my decision to, to get off the road, which, which wasn't the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I was sort of the only one left from the, core from the very beginning they could still get off the road mm-hmm. and and not have you know and not have one of the you know it was just the band at that point that that was there from the beginning and so that, you know, that was a little, that was a little tough because who doesn't want to be home more? And and especially as everybody was starting to settle down with, with their wives and think about families as well. So I, I don't, you know, I, I do not take for granted the ability to, to make that decision and get off the road, which is good for, you know, good for my, me and my family. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely a, a, a part of it, but it was only a piece of it uh, in that I really did feel like, uh, while it was the best thing for me, I really felt like it was the best thing for us uh, as we tried to really take take the band and our in our business to the to the next level and and make sure that we weren't missing opportunities because there wasn't wasn't enough muscle at home to to kind of get things across the finish line. So
0: mm-hmm. it's kind of a win win. Um, you know, certainly the way I like to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. So during that transition from college, uh, when you guys are basically headquartering it in Chicago, was that a full bore move? Did Shay come with you as well? And you guys kind of started everything with your family. Well, with the two of you as a family there in Chicago, Um,
1: Yeah, it did. She was a year younger. So she was at school for another year. Okay. And then she moved home for, for a couple of months, but then came to Chicago after that. So we were together. It was about a, about a 16 or eighteenth month window that we lived in different places, but then she came to Chicago and we've been here ever since.
0: Mm -hmm. So with your people that got things handed off to them, were they also like Bobby who took over basically tour manager. Yeah. Yes. He is our current tour manager. We had
1: Don Richards, um, our esteemed tour guide, as I like to call him, Mm -hmm. he was, uh, he was the one who took over for Vince. Um, when Vince got off the road and over the, over the years we picked up, you know, as, as we grew and needed more positions filled, we filled them with, you know, with people that we had, known from just sort of doing it over a period of time. You meet people in different places that have different skill sets. And when you need one, you think, Hey, it was, you know, it was, we always like worked in with this person and this person always did a good job. And, and mm-hmm. that and then it was slowly sort of add on one by
0: one. So were they kind of doing it? Were you just meeting them in uh, venues or were these guys who were doing these things for other bands? Um, some of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of them um, in, like in Don's case
1: he had never he had never tour managed before. He just was uh he's like yeah, I, I can I can do this. He's mm-hmm. a very bright guy again like all of us are self-taught at every role no matter what it is. So like uh Bob Stone our uh our model engineer and production manager, he was working at the Canopy Club in Champaign and we used to play there a lot. So you know he was at a venue and and came over, and then some of our other guys had been working for for various other bands, and and we sort of slowly you know slowly just filled the filled the needs as they as they arose.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that idea of a lot of you guys or all of you guys being self taught in what you're doing kind of is another one of those things that seems to lend a hand into the very homogenous and organic feel that the band still I don't think has wavered from in all the years that I've kind of no I don't know how you word that correctly known of been listening to been uh, sending bills to you guys for facial reconstruction after meltings you, should, you know you, you'll hear it back from our lawyer on that last one. <laughs> great. Great. Uh that's fine. I I've I'm trying to build up the groups that I'm going to be hearing from from these two episodes alone apparently. Um but I mean, you know, the the still ongoing the headphones and snow cones um that makes the fan experience so so much different and you know, I, I've talked with people in crowds um, before and there are the people who don't want to do that because they feel like they'll be kind of isolating themselves away from the experience and away from the others in the crowd. And there's the other side of the coin that feels like it's doing the exact opposite of that and that you are kind of creating that more intimate uh, connection with the band and with the music and hearing every little thing or whatever. And that's unique. I mean, I don't know, maybe you do. Is there anybody doing that? I mean, aside from, aside from maybe somebody in Switzerland? Um, No, I don't even know of anybody in Switzerland that's doing it. To
1: my knowledge, there's nobody else that does it um, with any regularity you know, there's the silent disco concept, right? But that's a, that's a different animal. For those of you who have no idea what the hell headphones and snow cones are, uh, it's basically a way uh, when you go to an Umphreys concert, you can rent a set of headphones and a belt pack, just like a, it's just like a in-ear monitor pack that the band wears. And it has the soundboard feed being um, broadcast live through it during the show. So you can actually put on a set, a set of headphones and you get a much clearer, crisp mix of of the soundboard. It allows you to to kind of connect with the uh, the band in a totally different way, and take some of the take some of the acoustics out of a poor sounding venue, or eliminate the drunk guy over your shoulder who won't stop talking. Fill in the blank. And you know, Tim's point is is that yeah, it's not it's not one of those things that's designed to be. I never thought that it would you know replace the PA on a nightly basis, and people would uh only go to shows and get headphones. It's meant to be one of those things that some people really like that ability to to connect on a deeper level and it gives you a a window into the nuance that's happening that that's can be hard to achieve in a in a live setting like that. And it's just it's just a different way to experience it. It's not a it's not the right way. It's not the wrong way. It's just a different option for people who want to scratch different itches. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that kind of thinking drives a lot of what what we do and, and how I try to, um, how I try to experience things that, you know, that's something that I, I thought, well, geez, I'd like to hear, you know, when I go to a show, I'd like to hear in a more pristine and a more clairvoyant way. Like, you know, maybe, maybe other people would too. Um, so, you know, back to your point about the always being self-taught it's there's no doubt that the the ethos of how we operate has always been very differently because we didn't none of us came from a background in this business so in some ways it's really advantageous because you don't have any roadblocks against you or you, you don't have any preconceived ideas about this is mm-hmm. how this is how things happen this is things how you have to do things and so you get to kind of approach it with a fresh a fresh palette and say hmm, okay this is what we want to do, how do we go about doing it? This makes sense. This doesn't make sense. And then over the, you know, over the years, you see how your peers do it and you see how people that you look up to do it. And you, you take the things that you like and you leave the things that you don't. And you, you change things and you, you try some things that don't work. And, uh, but it, it, we never felt constricted by any set of rules because we didn't know what the rules were. Right. And we just did what we thought made sense. And, you know, we, we followed our gut a lot of times and we made decisions about what you know what we valued and what we thought would be cool experiences and we figured that if we kept it interesting for ourselves that that fans would find that interesting as, as well if if things ever got stale and you know half the things that we do are for us because if the guys aren't having fun playing, you know, playing up there on stage and recording albums and we're not having fun interacting with the fans and doing goofy shit and releasing things in odd ways. Like if we're not entertained, people aren't going to be entertained. They're going to mm. be able to see right through it. So while Umfries can be a lot to digest, um, at face value, there's a really high return on your investment. Once you make, you know, once you put a little bit into it you can get a lot out of it. Sometimes the barrier to entry can be uh, a little bit higher than, um than some bands and that's fine. You know, it's not for, it, it's not for everyone, but if you, if you get invested in it, it's a rabbit hole that, that is, that can be entertaining for a lifetime. So that's why we do it the way we do it. It's as much to keep ourselves uh feeling good about, about the thing and feeling excited about doing it because we feel like that that will attract uh, like minded people who see the value in that and don't get tired of you know sort of the same regurgitated uh, whether it's music or it's offerings or or whatever that's you know it yeah. does that doesn't actually matter what product you're sort of putting
0: out there that's just that's just how we think it works that's best. good business yeah well and that keeps your guys interest and creates potentially uh, greater longevity and. You guys are kind of like, I'm assuming you've seen The Matrix. I've actually never seen The Matrix. Oh, okay. So there's there's this scene that is very commonly known, um, which you may have even seen a snippet of this without having seen it. There's this kid that is in this, I don't know, it's kind of like a doctor's office for people with some kind of special power or whatever and this kid is holding this spoon and is just looking at it and is bending this normal silverware spoon in all these kind of crazy ways and is teaching um i believe keanu reeves how to do it and he maybe says whoa once or twice during that scene and the kid basically says you have to tell yourself there is no spoon and i think for you guys that is true you guys are basically in the music matrix because you aren't really thinking outside of the box to you guys there is no box and so all of your thoughts and processes are a little bit I mean you're obviously doing some of the you know you're putting out actual albums and you're having shows in actual venues but for the most part like a lot of your like you were saying you're not going through those normal restrictions and boundaries and having to think through those as well.
1: There is no spoon.
0: Yeah. So make sure you look up that scene and congratulate everybody in the Humphreys world that you guys are all in the matrix. (laughs) I'll take that, but
1: I feel like that's one of those movies that, you know, at some point I'm going to have to cross that off the list sooner than later. I feel like it's uh, still very relevant in the
0: popular vernacular. Mm -hmm. I, I won't, tell you that you need to see the second and third, um, they, they go a little bit downhill, but the first one is, is still worth seeing. Gotcha. I didn't know if Kiana was ever going to be able to top point break. So, oh gosh. Gotcha. Uh, do you guys have a lot of other things that are kind of out there that you are currently dabbling in or, that are on the horizon? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys aren't like dead on ideas or anything like that, but are there a bunch of new things that are more visceral, um, fan interactions that are waiting to take place? I wouldn't put too fine a point on anything specifically.
1: Always trying to stay up on, you know, both where things are and where things are going in terms of, uh, of, What's next? And, uh, you know, we touched on it very briefly at the end of the last episode, but there's, there's so many, there's so much noise and there's so many ways for people to, to connect and to be entertained that it can be increasingly hard to, to kind of cut through the clutter. Mm -hmm. And so I always try to keep my eye on ultimately where, where people are and where the eyeballs are to make sure that. That you, you know, you can get to people where they are, but it's, it's harder and harder because people are more and more fragmented and, um, people segment themselves into groups and people are on this social network, but not that network. And yeah, some people love email and some people hate email. And so to try to, try to figure out how to keep up with everybody because we churn out so much, so much stuff and so many announces for, Hey, you know, there's new shows and this tour and this event and this album and this new single and this new mashup record. It's like to try to put every one of those things on every platform, every time, um, is a lot of work. And it, you also, some days I still don't feel like we're, we're hitting everybody. Right. Um, so I'm always, I'm always thinking about ways to, um, try to bring people together and under, you know, is there a better way to bring people under one tent than the silos we all live in um, now? So Mm -hmm. you know, that to me, but it's hard because, you know, I, I, I appreciate and I respect the fact that some fans like an experience one way and some like it another. And some people don't have any interest in being on Facebook and some people only want to be on Facebook and, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to be all things to all people. And we've never ever tried to do that from a, uh, from a music standpoint or even a, you know, even the way we, we run our business so we're, we're not trying uh, it's never going to be the lowest common denominator. It's never going to be the most accessible thing. We believe that if you put a, you know, y- you work a little hard to get in, we'll reward the hell out of you. Right. Um, so I, those, you know, those kinds of things inform my my thinking about you know where uh, we have such a cool community of of music fans and supporters and and people that travel to see the band that I like you know the the best way to keep bringing those people together is is the live experience yeah. and and so it comes back to that a lot because you know I, I constantly want to tinker with things but at the end of the day getting a whole bunch of like-minded people who don't, who, you know, give them a good reason to come together and to see their friends and to travel across the country and, and have those, create those memories that, that still feels like a really good use of our time. Um, So trying to make sure that, you know, that every show is uh, as fulfilling and uh, successful as possible is still occupies a lot of the, uh, the, the thinking, but, you know we we're, we're, we throw we throw lots of stuff at the wall, and we'll
0: continue to do so until we shuffle off this mortal coil. <laughs> yeah. How, it, speaking of like the show and and having that be a good experience for others as well as good for you guys and profitable for the business, quote unquote. How often do you revisit or look at? Venues and change of venues and areas the, I think this comes more from me because I'm Southern California because, you know, I I got to experience the changeover from just House of Blues shows and um, finally fe- feeling too pinched in that venue to you guys growing out to where you're now at the will turn. And I think that's. It right? Like I don't uh no, you did San Diego two years ago, but you didn't do it this year, I think. Is that right? Uh yeah, that's correct. So how like is there a towards the end of the year when you guys I know you just released the first little grouping of shows for next year? At the end of or at some time in each year, are you saying, okay, so LA where two of our band members live, how what is the demand like for those shows? We're, you know, hitting there in March. Um, is there a another venue that we should be hitting in San Diego or in Orange County? Is there, you know, a demand for more nights in L.A. or whatever? How how often does that take place? Is that constant? Yeah, that's a that's an ongoing, constant conversation, both
1: with the band, with management and with our agent. Yeah. There's only, you know, there's only so many shows that we're going to play in a year. And there's only so many shows that we'll do, you know, in a particular six or seven week period. And there's only so many shows per week. And there's a ton of markets. And mm-hmm. you got to sit down and assess the, the, the goals and the value of, of all of these plays. And it's, you know, when you announce any tour, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, go look at the stream of comments. And there's always uh, 30% of the people are always complaining about uh, why are you skipping this market this time? Yeah, and yeah. and uh, I, you know, I, I get that there's, there are so many decisions that go into There's so many factors that go into each one of those decisions about um, when and where and why and how. And I mean, people wouldn't think, but like we, we, we check the we know every single football game that's being played on every single Saturday in every market, particularly the SEC in the southeast. Like you don't ever go up against, you know, you don't ever go play um, on the Georgia Auburn game. You, you know, like it, you stay out of you stay out of this market and right, right you know, there's, there's a hundred of those decisions about who gets what on what days of the week and what the venue is and what's the venue size and who's the promoter and what kind of deal can you get? And, you know, sometimes we play, sometimes there's the wrong, there's not a good venue in the right market, or you can't get the venue you want on the day you want, or, yeah, and all of those things, you know, all of those things influence, um, our decisions. And it's a little bit harder for us to get to get to the, to the West coast and to spend, you know, as much time out there as people dwelling in Southern California might, um, might, might so want. And so it's, you know, everything, when you, you play one more show in the Midwest, maybe that's one fewer that you can play in LA and maybe you do that, you know, one year and then the next year you, you know, you tack another, three or four days onto the West coast tour and you do three or four less in the Northeast. And, um, and, and, you know, every play it's, you're just, you're thinking about, you're thinking about so many different factors and we, you know, it's part art, it's part science. And despite what fans think, it's, it's never, our goal is never to piss you off by not not playing. And, you know, some markets are better than others for us. And some markets have more, more promise to develop. And we got to, you just take all those factors into consideration before deciding. And, you know, and then there's the, you know, there's the personal side of it. Uh, one, Vince and I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to keep the guys home as much as possible mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, make the quality of life for the touring as good as we can for, for people with families and, uh, and for everybody for that matter. So it's a, it's a delicate balance. There's a lot of bills that got to get paid and there's a lot of salaries that got to get paid. So you got to play. Yeah that's just the nature of any, you know, any business, you gotta, you gotta balance all of those things and come out with a strategy and a plan that you think best suits the most of them. And,
0: uh, onward you March. Yeah. And that was, that was not my angry speech about LA, by the way. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say no to more shows out here, but, um, I was just saying that because I can't really speak on behalf of the people who may be angrily yelling from, I don't, I don't know where Milwaukee, Atlanta, right? Wherever right here in lovely Chicago, but they're, uh,
1: they're, they're having a good, a good fall here. We did two dates in September and three nights in new year's, uh, here in lovely Chicago. So I think most of those voices have, have quieted for now. <laughs> <laughs> That's hey, good. You know what? At the end of the day, I I'm flattered by the fact that people get pissed that we're not right. playing near them. Because to me that means we're doing something right.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say that. That the fact that there is some of that mumbling and grumbling is, is uh a sign of good things. So sure, it sure beats nobody caring. Oh ah, yeah. they're not coming here. Ah, who cares? Yeah, who cares? We'll go see uh Chicago instead. Have you guys just because I'm thinking of that? Has there ever been any talk, and I don't know how many bands actually do it, of this, the outlying states like Hawaii and Alaska? Is there any drive there at all? Hey, if you can find 2,000 of your closest friends to (laughs) come
1: follow us around Hawaii for a week, you guys uh, would be very excited to do it. All over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it comes down to to time and logistics and money and like to you have to develop markets. Right. And, you know, we could, we could go to Hawaii and the show may tank, which yeah. <laughs> like, right. You, you can't just, um, you know, just, go because, just to go. Yeah. Well, just because you can sell, um, 2,500 tickets in LA doesn't mean you can catch the a flight to Honolulu and 2,500 people are going to come in Honolulu, right. Hon- Hon- yeah. which it's fine. And you just have to be realistic about about, Hey, if we're going to, if we want to make, um, Honolulu a market, that's okay, but we're going to have to go, we're going to have to go back and we're gonna have to go back a second time. And, and you can only do that to so many places. I mean, we had the same conversation about overseas where it's like, Oh, we'd, you know, we'd really like to do more business in Europe and go back to Japan and Australia. And it's, you can do that, but you gotta, you know, the opportunity cost is you're either playing more shows and you're gone more, which isn't really uh, an option for us right now, or you're not playing a week of shows in the States. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you just have to, you got to decide what's important, you know, what's most important for now and, and kind of follow that track or else. Um,
0: but Hawaii, Alaska tour, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's bug it. Uh, I, I, because I said that I might just add, I get, like, the emails, and I can't remember where what I did to make this happen, but I get them from Live Nation for, gosh, maybe Colorado or some Seattle or something, as well as, like, these shows are coming to you in L.A. or whatever. So I might have to try and sign up for Alaska and Hawaii just out of curiosity to see what actual bands make it out there aside from Don Ho's Tiny Bubbles or whatever. Yeah. I mean, bands, uh, I, I don't know about Alaska, but Hawaii certainly has some native
1: sons that do, you know, that do well there. I feel like if you grow up gigging in Hawaii, it's like, you just gig there for, for a while. You know, you, yeah. do, you develop that market, some, uh, bands, some friends of ours, Iration, who we uh, had a support on some shows a while back. Those guys are from Hawaii and I'm always like that, uh, it's not a terrible place. You know, we, we come from South bend, They come from Hawaii. It's
0: very, very similar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly the same mirror images of each other. I'm glad you said that because that was going to be the next question I was going to ask was what goes into that process behind the scenes for you guys of who you bring on tour with you? Like, how did that connection happen between you guys and talk this year, or maybe that started last year, and now I see that there's somebody else who's on, I was going to say on the ballot with you guys for uh, the beginning of next year. But how, d- how does that process take place behind the scenes? Vote Quimby. Um,
1: <laughs> let's see. So that there's, uh, there's a number of, um, different ways that that can happen it, depending on what the markets are. You know, ultimately you, you want to find a good cool band that uh, is worth some tickets. um, it, and it depends on you know the run of shows whether it's an individual night or it's a it's a full tour. We you know when we were coming up and we felt like a good way to obviously a good way to get in front of new audiences was to was to play with other bands that were more established and we we appreciated the uh, the support we got from people like you know from having people like the allman brothers and dave matthews um have us open for shows mm-hmm. was you know it was a big opportunity for us and it's also good for them because you know, they do it in markets where we sell you know where we sold a lot of tickets so kind of on the flip side of that now where we want to expose we want to expose people to to other good bands things that they'll like things that make you know can make it a little bit more of an event uh, on a night out and also they can help, you know, that have, that have fan bases of their own that can help uh, bring some people out. And it's kind of a win-win all around, but right. You know, we, we look at a number of um, we look at a number of factors you know, from the quality of the music to the, to their value at the box office. And, uh, and sometimes, sometimes we take bands out because we're like, yeah, this is a great band. People ought to, uh, it's more of just a value add where mm-hmm. people ought to, people ought to experience this and, you know, let's do some some shows with with these guys, so so people can,
0: you know, just help. We can just help get the word out. So, I'm sure that's one of the benefits of having your own label that you're not having. You know, Warner Brothers tell you this tour you're going to be touring with Janet Jackson. Yeah, there's really there's really nothing that we have to do that we don't um,
1: decide for ourselves. There's yeah. no, um, we you know over the years we made. We made decisions so that we never, we never. The answer to the man. Yeah, we we never put the control in anybody else's hands because we we knew that nobody was ever going to care more about it than we were. Nobody was ever going to be more in tune with it than we were. Um, And uh, you know, if it meant that meant that we traded a little bit of, uh, you know, I was going to say the word success, but I don't even define it that way because to me, it's more successful to control your own destiny and be able to make the decisions you want and feel good about putting your head on the pillow at the end of the night, then, uh, then you do about having to compromise the things that you don't want to compromise just because, uh, it was a little bit more lucrative. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we make those decisions based on, uh, what we feel good about, not necessarily what, you know, is absolutely the most, uh, profitable or whatever. So, right.
0: So I know we're running low on time, so we'll do some, a little bit of, more rapid fiery stuff at you C C C, all seeds um i won't do uh multiple choice then because i can see how that's gonna go <laughs> um so when you were a youth uh what was the music that you were hearing in your household um when i was a youth you um
1: you know, there was not as much music in my household young um, from my parents. It really was more from my brothers, particularly mm-hmm. my brother Christian. And I I listened to a whole bunch of junk for a, a while. Um, just like, you know, top 40 stuff. Right, right, right. And then um, the first stuff that I started to really get into as a kid was like Guns N' Roses and Hairbands, like Poison <laughs> and some of that stuff. And then... Um, In eighth grade, uh, my best friend Rylan and I went to see Pink Floyd. Oh, wow. And we literally came home and threw away almost our entire CD collections. And it was like, we don't know what we're supposed to be listening to, but we're certain that it's not this. Yeah, yeah. And we got rid of so much of this, like the top 40 noise, and started listening to a bunch of Pink Floyd. And then um, my brother... Um, was listening to a lot of dead at that point. So got into the grateful dead and a lot of stuff actually from my, my friend's parents, um, which I, you know, didn't realize at the time, but so much great music like cat Stevens and Crosby, Stills and Nash and young. And um, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, mm-hmm. and then the doors just kind of blew wide open. Once you, once you get into that world and, you know, start the classic, Beatles and Zeppelin and that stuff, and then I uh, went and saw a bunch of fish shows, and um, you know, spent a lot of time doing that, and so kind of kind of ran the gamut. And now I listen to as much uh, Chopin and Mozart while I'm working as I do uh, as I do anything else.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it, how it? much how, how much of your work do you bring home and listen? Like how much Umphries do you listen to? That is not stuff like right now, I assume you're listening to some of the Zonky stuff before it's released or, or you have been recently, but you know, are you going back and like, I want to listen to this show from earlier this year or whatever.
1: Um, yeah, I, when the band's on tour, I tend to listen to, to try to listen to, to most shows the day after when I'm sitting at my desk, but Mm -hmm. I don't actually listen to the full show. I pretty much just go to the improv because I've heard the forms of the songs like a thousand times. Yeah. That's on the light side. Um, So unless I'm checking, like, you know, I'll go, I'll go reference, like, Uh, you know, Chris will try something different with the the recording. And so I'll go listen to that specifically. I can listen about a hundred different ways. Sometimes I'm listening to just the balance. Sometimes I'm listening to fidelity or I'm listening to a, you know, we're screwing around with a new file type and I'm listening to, can I hear the difference between these two encoders? Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm listening to just the, you know, the the guys will have reworked a, a section of a song and I'm just listening to it from that angle. Or I'm listening to the, the way that the, you know, how do the harmony sound or, um, and then sometimes I'm, I, you know, when I'm at my desk, I just like, I like to listen to the, Im- the improv. Cause that to me is kind of the, the best, um, uh, sort of benchmark of, of how the show, how the show, was. How, how the show really was. Yeah. Uh, because I don't need to hear, you know, the, the verse and chorus of second self. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I still enjoy it. I just, I you know, I just, I don't, um, I don't always, go back so uh, I still
0: you could say I still consume a pretty uh, pretty rabid amount of it yeah I should have asked Ryan this too in in the lore of the in the lore of the Grateful Dead you have some of those shows like the hallowed mescaline show from I think 77 or 78 and there's another show a complete like crazed out show. And it's like something that everybody kind of jumps after. Are there any of those shows that, that jump gonna, out at you? That I'm gonna and I'm going to tell you about <laughs> not that everybody was on mescaline, but that is like one of these kind of special shows for one reason or another that, you know, for me, there's a dead show, 7878, um, which is very easy to remember. Thank God that I, I don't think that was a mescaline show but it was one of those shows where they were on fire and anybody who even likes the dead, like I will make them listen to that show because it's, it's insane. And it's totally unique and different. Um, you know, I mean, Hey, that's, that's what happens at red rocks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know what I'm talking about with that show? Are there any of those that kind of pop out in your head that are free shows that are kind of unique and special for whatever reason it may be and doesn't have to be like they were all on shrooms.
1: Um, Yeah, there's, there's, there's no doubt. And you know, they're probably, I have different, probably have different reasons that they are the way they are to me. But like there's a, in 2006 in March, we played the Chicago theater for the first time, which is a, Gorgeous venue um, in Chicago, and it was sort of a big, a big deal for us. And I was, mm-hmm. mi- I was mixing on a um, a console that was hand built by Jim Gamble, who's one of the one of the greatest console designers, and certainly one of the most like classic old school analog guys. Actually, I'm pretty sure that the Dead in '78 were mixing on a console built by Jim Gamble. Um, oh, really? So I'm certain of it, actually. And Jim actually came to the show um, that that Chicago theater show. And I felt like it was one of those nights where the band played, the band played spectacularly well from first to last note. I was really happy with the mix. There was, you know, this outpouring of like our friends and family there from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Gamble, Gamble was there. It was like one of those nights at the end where, um, it just felt like everything clicked. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of those shows, you know, for me that really stands out. I don't know that you'd find every Humphreys fan. that would be like, you got to go check out, this that, March 2006 Chicago show, yeah, yeah, but you know that's one that definitely stands out to me. Honestly, less than less than the shows, it's it's more even the the, the moments to me, mm-hmm. um, p- particularly when I was mixing when I was mixing because you'd have you know day in day out it, it's you know it's it's hard work putting on shows and people are people are tired and people are on different schedules and things are going on with people at home and you've got this whole dynamic between the band and each other and the crew. And there's just, there's so many factors that go into it. And those moments when, when everything is clicking and everything's working and the, and the guys are all just seamlessly locked into each other and you love the way it sounds. And the, the lighting cue is perfect with it. Like those are the moments to me that, just, I'm like, this is why we do what we do for this five second moment. Even if somebody pulls the fire alarm and the pl- place goes dark right now, like these are the moments that, um, that sort of recharge the batteries and remind you why it's just an amazing thing to be able to do, you know, to do this for a living and to do it with people that you, you'll love. And so for me, you know, the last 18 years are just littered with, with moments like that here and there from, from shows all over the place that those are the things that, that kind of energize and motivate me to, to, to keep Mm -hmm. plugging away. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, um, I, I'm sad that we didn't talk sports at all. I was really planning on talking about your, um, I probably wouldn't be able to talk very much about the red wings with you, but I know you're a big red wings fan. Are things looking good for you guys this year? Uh, I, I, I don't think we're going to be great.
1: Um, I think we're gonna be better than we were last year, but yeah. what I will say is uh it's uh we're sort of in the beginning middle phase of, of rebuilding after the team was so full of vets for so long yeah. you know, and such great players with a little bit of youth sprinkled in to, to make it work. And, and we've, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those guys are now gone and it's a, it's a young squad and kind of starting, starting over in a way. Right. Um, So that's the, you know, that's the cyclical nature of, of sports. So you, you uh, you're patient in the leaner years while you, as long as you feel like doing, you know, things are doing right or things are being gone about right. um, Which would be a perfect natural um, segue to my Cubs, which um, five years ago, lost 100 games and five years later won 103 games um you know there's a that's been such a fun i mean the last two years as a chicago cubs fan i have not had more fun watching baseball since i can't even remember when mm-hmm. um, i used to come home from school as a kid and catch the last three innings of you know every afternoon game on wgn while i was sitting in my mom's kitchen counter having my snack and you know those to, to see what's happening now in Chicago is just, it's just really fun. You know, the Ricketts family has approached ownership entirely the right way, has brought the right people in. Um, what, you know, Epstein's doing, you know, well as a Red Sox fan. Oh, yeah. Um, his, you know, his beautiful mix of, of science and art with, uh, with big data is just, is really something that's fun to watch. And then, uh, the way that Joe Madden has the, those, has the locker room enjoying themselves and focusing on the right stuff and, uh, having fun out there and, you know, the farm system, um, producing the kind of kids you, you want that are focused on the right things. It's just, uh,
0: it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. You guys seem to be on, those are the perfect two team comparisons because, Uh, You seem to be kind of on the brink of what the Red Wings were for so many years of just, I mean, you've got really like even in a better place, because when you're talking veterans, like you're talking what David Ross and there's not much in the way of age that comes close to that. You should really be strong very very strong for the next like three to five years and unless something tumultuous happens like really for the five years after that you should still have a go at it Um, so congratulations (laughs) uh
1: i i I think you're uh i think you're right and that's why that's why it's fun because it 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 feels like this is how you do it it's not a let's go pick up a bunch of vets in free agency and try to just you know, try to pull the strings right and, and win it one year. And then the team falls yeah. apart. Then The team falls apart. This is a, it's a, it's a different, it's a different way of doing it. And it's a much more rewarding way to do it uh, from, from this man's perspective. So,
0: yeah, I think the satisfaction of having, being able to watch it all kind of unfold as opposed to, you know, the way the Dodgers were trying to do it two years ago, I think they've actually got some Youth now that they're bringing in from their own system, but the way that they were basically just trying to buy once Magic Johnson came in and, you know, the trade that thank God they did with us to take, uh, Gonzalez and two other pieces that aren't even there anymore, um, and spend way too much money on all of that and other pieces. Like, I think there is something very much to feeling like you are connected to these players that, you even if you aren't really paying attention to your farm system you're seeing them come in L- last year was ridiculous i mean how it's hard to not love the cubs but um i am I'm, I'm happy for you guys i i'm sure you've got unless something happened i'm not even going to say it we're a couple of weeks away from the world series and i'm just not going to say anything about yeah, I'll, I'll i'll just put the uh i'll just put the caveat
1: out that as we tape We're in the middle of the uh, NLCS with the Dodgers. And by the time you hear this, um, I'm hoping that you're talking to the Cubs winning their first world series in 108 years. Um, But if, you know, if for some reason it didn't happen, still, um,
0: still love my Cubs. Yeah. You basically, after this recording, either you and most of the band are celebrating somewhere on the streets with champagne bottles or you guys are holed up in your basements uh to be heard from in a couple of months. (laughs) We'll probably be we'll probably be holed up with bottles as well, just uh (laughs) morning. Yeah. All right. Well um that pretty much does it for us for the Fork in the road. Uh I will again say thank you very much for uh, taking so much time out of your day, Kevin, and uh, recording with me.
1: Yep, nice, uh, nice chatting. I hope you uh, out there listening gleaned some some redeemable value and didn't just feel like you wasted
0: uh, an hour and fifteen minutes of your life. Oh, not at all. Absolutely not. And I think other people. I think this is kind of a cool um, little background bit of information that people don't normally get to hear about the band. And in both episodes as well about yourself. And I know that a lot of people like to make that connection. And again, it kind of falls into what you guys are very big on doing and do so well, which is having that kind of almost feels like an open door policy with your fans. And that's what has enabled me to connect with you guys for so long and um, something that I've always praised you guys for. So I do appreciate it.
1: Yep, no problem. We uh, we like it that way, too.
0: It's uh, it's a lot more fun when people are along for the ride. So, yeah. Whatever social media tags you want to um, allow people to find you or uh, the band at, you can run through your gamut right now. Sure. You can find me on pretty much all of the
1: Twitter and Instagram or uh, at soundcaresser, one word. And... Yeah, and then all things uh, all things Humphreys, you can find it um, at Humphreys McGee on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Snapchat. You uh, you name it. The yet to be invented uh, social platform that'll be super relevant by the time some of you hear this. Mm-hmm. We'll be um- Periscope, yeah. <laughs> which,
0: which you guys briefly dabbled in. Yeah,
1: Periscope kind of got. I AB'd Periscope, and once Facebook Live happened, mm-hmm. um, the reality is is that the reach of I, I go where the people go, and right. the reach of Facebook Live versus Periscope is uh, not even not even close.
0: Yeah, you're already connected to so many people there, and with the new, regardless of how cool the apps may be or whatever, getting people to also add this other thing that they have to be on—that's kind of the reaction I frequently see is (sighs) yes you want me to follow you on what now too yep yeah fatigue is is set in uh nice chatting. yeah you too talk to you later good luck thank you thank you thank you All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I apologize for the little bit of lag that was taking place during this conversation. Sometimes that happens with the remote recordings using the internet for me to be able to record and not be sitting with somebody. I want to thank you all for listening to this and the other episode. You can find Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, now on Instagram on Facebook, all under Daddy Unscripted. You can find the original website at www.daddyunscripted.com, where you can see all of the episodes, as well as a little bit of filler in between some of them, i.e. a post that I did for Ryan Stasic's episode, kind of a companion piece, as well as kind of a companion piece to this episode with some photos that I've taken of and with the band over the years. And some of the original blog posts before Daddy Unscripted was even a podcast. So kind of cool to be able to go back and look at that stuff. You can send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. And again, I didn't even thank Kevin during the episode on recording of his allowing. Really, it was Kevin and, and myself coming together to strike the agreement for Humphreys mcgee's music to be able to be on these podcasts so kevin if you're listening thank you again for that and uh you can find them at umphreys.com and i'm really stoked to be able to have their music on these podcasts and to be able to have made that happen before the episodes with ryan and kevin it just made sense so thanks for making that happen and for allowing that partnership to take place and you guys will be able to go back and listen to any of those uh recordings those previous episodes with kevin with ryan and who knows maybe we'll have uh somebody else from the band or the band's family on at some point but uh, make sure you keep a lookout for the next episodes coming out again i want to thank all of you guys for your feedback and your messages um, some of you have sent me some cool information on guests that you'd like to have on. And I love all of the feedback you guys are giving me. Uh, you can keep that coming at daddyunscripted@gmail.com, at And I'm really excited for all the reviews and how many of you are sub- subscribing to the podcast on either itunes or stitcher radio or google play it means a lot to me so keep it coming i'm i'm loving seeing all of that outpouring of love for the podcast and that you guys are in fact getting something out of this so i appreciate that so keep your eye out for the next episode which should be in a week or two on the daddy unscripted podcast